Subcommittee will be in order. On October 17th, Ford volunteered to testify before Congress, the first president ever to do so. The suspicions that were created by the circumstances of the pardon which you issued, the secrecy with which it was issued, and the reasons for which it was issued, which made people question whether or not, in fact, there was a deal. Uh, Mrs. Holtzman, I want to assure you, the members of this subcommittee, members of the Congress, and the American people, there was no deal, period, under no circumstance. That's, well, the first voice you heard was Jeff Daniels. He's narrating a recently released documentary about President Gerald R. Ford. The documentary premiered on National Geographic. A portion of it was presented to an audience at the Howenstein Center on October 3rd, 2017, as part of the Center's Character and the Presidency series. A sponsor of that series is also a producer of the Ford documentary. That's former ambassador to Italy, Peter Secchia. Secchia and President Ford were friends. Following the screening, Secchia gave brief remarks about President Ford's character. He says he's always thought that Ford's presidency should be taken a bit more seriously by historians, and that Ford's decision to pardon Nixon was a testament, in fact, to his character. That's the view explored in the documentary. After Secchia's address, we hear from David Brooks, who needs no introduction, of course, everyone's familiar with his widely read column in the New York Times, as well as his best-selling book, The Road to Character. Brooks talks with presidential historian Ronald C. White about character and the presidency generally. They ask what qualities a good leader, a good president, say, should have. Their discussion is moderated by Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center. I'll spare you more introduction because this episode is lengthy and substantive. We'll start with audio of the documentary, then hear from Peter Secchia, and then the terrific conversation between Brooks, White, and Whitney. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. But even as President Ford was growing in assurance and popularity, he knew he couldn't truly heal the country until the situation with Richard Nixon was resolved. The former president had resigned, but would he be prosecuted for his actions? At Ford's first major press conference a month into his presidency, Journalists grilled him on whether he would buck public opinion and exercise his power to pardon Nixon. Are you saying, sir, that the option of a pardon for former President Nixon is still an option that you will consider? Every day was a different crisis. Every day was a different issue. It was serious times. Whatever charges are made. He needed to and wanted to attack those problems. But he can't attack those problems when you have a press conference and 90% of the questions are asked about Watergate. And you're not ruling it out. I am not ruling it out. It is an option, and a proper option for any president. Over the Labor Day weekend, Ford gathered his closest legal advisors and considered the options before him. He knew that if Nixon did face trial, the country would be mired in Watergate for years to come. But... If he steered America clear of that fate by pardoning Nixon before a trial, public anger would most likely cost him election to his own term of office in 1976. The following Sunday, Ford went to the Oval Office to deliver a special announcement to the nation. 
I have learned already in this office that the difficult decisions always come to this desk. I must admit that many of them do not look at all the same as the hypothetical questions that I have answered freely and perhaps too fast on previous occasions. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, do grant a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon for all offenses against the United States from July 20, 1969 through August 9, 1974. He ended his remarks and he immediately signed the pardon document right then and there. I remember catching the eye of Vice President Ford's naval aide, a wonderful guy named Howard Kerr, who was, who was positioned somewhere between the briefing room and the cabinet room. And uh, he caught my eye, and I caught his eye, and I just shook my head. And he said, why are you shaking your head? I said, Howard, he's finished. He just cost himself the 1976 election. And Al Haig, President Ford's chief of staff, says, no, you're wrong. He just made his first presidential decision. Truth is, I think we were both right. There's been some angry reaction to the Nixon pardon. According to White House statistics, phone calls are heavy now, running about 50-50. But telegrams are six to one against the president's decision. Six to 700 telegrams an hour. People were stunned as much as anything, and there was a kind of visceral reaction to what had happened. One telegram from Virginia said, a just and courageous step, brace yourself for the liberals and the media. But from New Mexico, another telegram said, Roosevelt had his new deal, Truman had his fair deal, now Ford has his crooked deal. The people on the left in the Democratic Party, said Kennedy and others, were hearing screams from their constituents and from their allies. You know, you can't let this SOB get off. Uh, Gerald Ford has been, uh, actually been hustled by Al Haig and others and uh, we've got to strike back. Friends describe Mr. Ford's mood as rather grave, and he seemed preoccupied as he came down the ramp, almost losing his footing at one point. The crowd outside grew to about 600 people, and as he left, Gerald Ford heard himself booed for the first time as president. It was such a surprise to everybody that uh, you know, they were sort of were stunned and dropped us, I don't know, 20, 30 points in the polls almost overnight. I felt very good about the future of the country. All of a sudden, in one fell swoop, that's uh, gone. With the 1976 presidential elections looming, Democrats sensed an opportunity to weaken Ford. The president has resigned, was not tried through the impeachment process, and now is being pardoned by, by the man who he appointed to the office of the presidency. I think it's a, a disturbing precedent for the country. Subcommittee will be in order. On October 17th, Ford volunteered to testify before Congress, the first president ever to do so. The suspicions that were created by the circumstances of the pardon which you issued, the secrecy with which it was issued, and the reasons for which it was issued, which made people question whether or not, in fact, there was a deal. Uh, Mrs. Holtzman, I want to assure you, the members of this subcommittee, members of the Congress, 
and the American people there was no deal, period, under no circumstances. Ford said, look, the pardon wasn't for Nixon, wasn't for me. It was for what he called the national interest. I was absolutely convinced then, as I am now, that if we had had this series, an indictment, a trial, conviction, and anything else that transpired after that, that the attention of the president, the Congress, and the American people would have been diverted from the problems that we have to solve. The pardon, I think, showed his uh, moral courage. It showed that he was willing to do something that he knew was going to cost him. You don't often see a lot of moral courage in Washington, but that was a clear moment. This afternoon, we had the opportunity to have some short conversations with our two guests. And they referred to this character in the presidency and the ethics of the man many of you knew and many of us shared private moments with. And it was that that motivated me to produce this film after watching on public television a short synopsis of the presidents of the last two decades. We came to a point where they talked about Nixon and jumped right to Jimmy Carter. And I jumped up and threw something at the television set and said, damn it, we, we got to find a way. So at the Ford Foundation, Hank and I have been co-chairing a legacy committee now for a couple of years. But I started this film three or four years ago. And when I got into it with producers from New York and interviewing with people who do documentaries in California, they weren't interested in doing a film on character and ethics in presidents. And then I watched the debates of the 19 or the 2016 election, and I watched 17 Republicans calling each other names, and I watched Democrats not knowing what to call each other. It was just no principle involved in any side of it. Nobody liked Jerry Ford. And the quality that we knew he had, as Oprah Winfrey called last week, as West Michigan nice, uh, was built into Jerry Ford. It wasn't the water he drank. It wasn't the religion he had. It wasn't just his wonderful parents. It was the fact that he grew up in a community that cared. And judging by the numbers here, people still care in our generation. Now, we have to look at the generations that are still out there. I, uh, I watch Elizabeth Holtzman. Some things never change. Uh, it makes you want to drain the swamp even more. You think back on those days. But what you've got here is a man who meant something to all of us. And the principles, and as Tom DeFrank said, it might have cost him the 76 election. I was asked by Ron White to tell you this quick story about when Ford was in Pittsburgh. The riots were beginning. The demonstrations at the White House. Betty was home alone. He was in Pittsburgh on a Monday. I got a phone call from Bill Lukash, the White House doctor, who said, can I talk to you, Mr. Secchi? Yes, sir. What's up, Bill? He says, uh, President, why don't you do him a favor? I want you to fly to Washington tonight and spend the evening with Mrs. Ford. She's alone at the White House. There's a lot going on. She's not feeling well. And I flew out. And we, you remember those days, everybody? We had to change planes in Pittsburgh to get a plane to DC maybe twice a day. And uh, I went out, and I spent that evening sitting there talking to her. The chants outside 
the beeping of horns, the booing, all of the tension that was built. And when he came home that night, he came upstairs pretty late. And I was waiting for him to have dinner, and she decided not to have dinner. It was just the two of us. He sat down. I don't want to break your image of Jerry Ford, but in his early years, he drank martinis. <laughs> and he pressed a little button on his chair, and in came the naval steward, Filipino waiter, who said, Mr. President, he said, I'll have one. Peter, OK. What are you going to do, turn down the president? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we had that one martini. And he said to me, Peter, Nixon blanked up the pea patch. I had to do it. And it'll probably cost me the 76 election. He knew it that night. I was so, I was in deep trepidation that somebody else might have been listening and I was in over my skis. And I'm sitting there going like this, no, don't tell me anymore, don't tell me anymore. Only because I, I was over my head. To be honest, I was a 34-year-old lumber salesman who came out and did things for him when he needed me to do them. But I knew there was a man of strong ethical character. So I had to do the following. I hope you all support what we're doing at the Ford Foundation, because his legacy is very important to Hank and I. We created this program. I want it to go on. I want it to be done regularly. And I want you to all enjoy tonight's speakers, because they're dynamite, really dynamite. So thank you all for being here. Thank you, Ambassador Sekia. And now it's my pleasure to invite our three guests to the stage. First up is Dr. Ronald C. White. A graduate of UCLA and Princeton, Dr. White is a leading historian of the 19th century United States. He's currently a fellow at the Huntington Library in California and is the author of numerous award-winning biographies on such presidents as Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. Please help me welcome Dr. White to the stage. He's joined this evening by David Brooks, columnist at the New York Times and frequent contributor both to NPR and PBS NewsHour. He too has authored numerous best-selling books, including Bobo's in Paradise, The Social Animal, and The Road to Character. Please welcome David Brooks to Grand Rapids. And of course, tonight's conversation will be moderated by our very own Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center since 2003. The third edition of his book, Religion and the American Presidency, was just released today. Perfect timing. And on that note, let's turn things over to Gleaves. Well, thank you very much, Scott, for that great introduction. I am so pleased that we brought this conversation together. We've been talking about this for a year. And it's a topic we had no idea this time last year that had become really a pertinent topic for virtually every minute uh, of, our, of our public discourse. Let's jump right in. I'd like to ask you all, what is character and where does it come from? David, you can start. Uh, well, I wrote a book called The Road to Character. And writing a book on character, I learned um, that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character, <laughs> uh, and even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. 
But buying a book on character does. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, I highly recommend that. Um, you know, the theory there, I've got the big print edition here. Um, <coughs> small prints over in Ohio State, so. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the basic theory of that book is the way you build character is you identify your core sin and you fight it. Uh, and we all have some weakness. And for one of my characters, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, his weakness was his temper. And the story I told uh, was of Ike as a little boy at age eight or nine, wanted to go out trick-or-treating, and he, um, his mom wouldn't let him. And he got so mad, he punched the tree in his front yard, and he rubbed all the skin off his fingers. And his mom sent him to his room and let him cry for an hour, and then came up to bind his wounds <clears throat> and recited a verse from Proverbs, which is that he that uh, conquereth his own soul is greater than he who taketh the city. And when he wrote his memoirs 60 years later, he said that was the most important conversation of his life because it taught him that he had a problem, which was his temper, and that if he wanted to be anything, a leader of any kind, he had to conquer it. And he really spent the next 60 years working on his own weakness. And so to me, the, the key to character in that, the way I wrote in the book, was the key is humility. And humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's radical self-awareness from a position of other-centeredness, the ability to see yourself honestly and then to work on yourself. Now since the book came out, the one thing about that scene didn't occur to me, but I think should have occurred to me. And that was his mom. All the characters in my book had amazing moms. And Ida Eisenhower was an amazing, amazing woman. Their dads were eh, but the moms <laughs> were amazing. And I came across a study not too long ago where they, all these guys were drafted in the World War II and some rose to become colonels and majors, and some stayed privates. So they wanted to know what correlated with success in the Army in World War II. Was it IQ? No correlation. Was it physical bravery? No correlation. Was it socioeconomic status? No correlation. The number one correlation was relationship with mother. The guys who had received a flood of love from their mom knew how to give it to their men. And I think one of the things that forged Ike's character, along with all the other characters in that book, was that they had amazing moms who poured love into them. And I've come to think that this idea that character is built by fighting against yourself, this like hydraulic notion, there are all these temptations, you gotta beat it, that's part of character, but to me the most important character, and this is St. Augustine speaking, is loving the right things and knowing how to love really well. Uh, we all have a lot of things that we love and some are low, like loving a money, some are high, like loving truth and loving the right things, and then putting your higher love above your lower loves. So I think character building is a lot more fun than I used to. <laughs> yes, Ron, I've had the privilege of speaking here in the past, both on my biography of Lincoln and Grant, and I've discovered in writing those biographies that I wanted to write from what I call the inside out. It isn't simply what Lincoln did, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, or what Grant did, he led the Union armies to victory, it's who they were. And uh, this, this is central. And I was struck in watching the Ford film over the weekend in California of the same kind of qualities. It's interesting how the commentator uses the term moral courage. Well, that's Grant's term. He's the one who invented that term. And echoing what David has just said, not, not only would it be mothers, but it would be wives. <laughs> so that for me, the forgotten person in the Grant story is Julia, this remarkable person. They had this incredible marriage. People would come upon them in the White House 
years, years, years after their marriage, holding hands like bashful lovers. So at the base of character, really, then, is the question, who is the mentor? Uh, I'm impressed with the program here of the Hohenstein Center that I've learned this evening. You have 70 persons who are mentors. And the mentors are not simply academics, but they are people within the community. And so I wanted to find out who are the mentors of Grant, of Lincoln and Grant. Sometimes biographies, they're very popular today in bookstores, but we skip over what I call the formative periods of life. Grant said himself, the reason I do not read biographies is that they do not tell enough about the formative period of life. What I want to know is what a boy did as a man, what a girl did, what a woman did as a girl. So who are those formative figures? Uh, each one of these figures seems to have a conflicted relationship with father, but you may remember that Lincoln's stepmother came into his life, and she brought this kind of love and nurture. Grant's mother was a very quiet person. His father was very outspoken. She was the one who shaped him. So yes, I, I think that the formative ins instances or influences in our life are our parents, sometimes our spouses, but certainly our mentors. Who are those people? If you look back on your own life, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24 years of age, were there not people who mentored you to become the person you are today as an adult? Can I just amplify Absolutely. on that? You know, I, I read a study of, um, of so many great men and women had their dads die when they were 12. <laughs> and I'm, my kids are over 12. I told them I failed you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the guys I've been reading about recently is a great scientist named E.O. Wilson. Yeah. And when E.O. Wilson, Ed Wilson, was seven, his folks were splitting up, and they sent him to this beach, Paradise Beach in northern Florida. And he had never been to the beach. He was from Mississippi, central Mississippi. And he saw a jellyfish he'd never seen it before. He was stunned. He'd, and then he was floating on the, on, or hiding his feet dangling in the water off a dock. He saw a stingray go beneath. And he said at that moment a naturalist was born. He was seized by the beauty of nature. And, the, and I call it the Annunciation moment, the moment when we all are sort of are called to something. We find out what we're going to do with our life, often very young. But then he had two other things happened to him. The first was he was enraptured by the ocean all of a sudden. So he went fishing all summer all by himself. And one day he was fishing for a pinfish. He took it off the hook. It flipped out into his face. And the dorsal fin poked his eye, pierced his pupil, and ended up blinding him in that eye. So he's going to be a naturalist, but he couldn't study birds because he had to have stereoscopy, or whatever you call that, or fish. But he, he found ants, and he spent 80 years studying ants. <laughs> but then he went to, he had a very good professor at the University of Mississippi, but then he went to Harvard, and there was a professor there named Salisbury. And Salisbury told him, when you pick, collect your samples, don't collect on the path, that's too easy. Collect across the jungle. And one day Salisbury was collecting on a pond somewhere in the Amazon, and a crocodile grabbed the guy, pulled him down. He escaped, crocodile came back, grabbed the guy, pulled him down. He's bleeding, his whole body's crushed. He drags himself away, drags himself back to the hospital, and gets a cast. And Wilson says, that's no proof of character getting away from a crocodile. But what happened next was, he's stuck in this cast in the Amazon. He spends the next five or six months dragging himself through the jungle, learning to collect bugs with his left hand. Hmm. And so I think that's what we want from mentors. First, the support, but we want to be told it's hard mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that it's worthy of being hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that sense of importance, that 
both the toughness. I remember my teachers, the ones I don't remember the ones who liked me. The ones who didn't <laughs> like me, I remember those ones. And if we sort of want that hardness in a mentor. Yes. I think you're both getting at the idea of character and leadership now. And that's exactly where I want to go next. Uh, when I had the privilege of interviewing President Ford in 2005, there came a point in our conversation where I said, Mr. President, what does it all boil down to, to you? Uh, what is the character trait that is the essence of leadership? And without hesitation, he looked at me and he said, trust. He said, trust. Mm -hmm. People have to know that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And if you say something to somebody in a private meeting, mm -hmm. you're not going to go out in the public and say something different, mm -hmm. which contradicts what you were going to say. I'd like for you all to address this issue of character and leadership. What are your thoughts on that? Ron, do you want to start? Well, David has reminded us in his wonderful book, The Road to Character, of the sort of big me personalities that seem to dominate politics, sports, entertainment, whatever the field is. And I'm struck by what I would call, it's a 19th century term, the self-effacement of the, those figures. Ulysses S. Grant, being elected president, writes to his best friend, William Tecumseh Sherman, a person so opposite in personality, I was forced into it in spite of myself, in spite of myself. I could not give up the task unless I, and then I would leave it, leave it to the trading politicians. I wanted to, this office not for myself, but so that we could preserve the great victories of this war. So one of the traits I think is pointing beyond yourself. Certainly there's ambition in any leader. There would be ambition in Gerald Ford, but as I watched that movie, I saw him pointing beyond himself to those he wanted to serve at the end of the story, to the 200,000 Vietnamese refugees, again and again pointing beyond himself to goals that were important for the whole nation, not just his own self-aggrandizement. Yeah, just on that, when I was watching the movie, I was struck by being here. In Ford's case, it was not only um, his family, though that was clearly important, but it was the whole culture of this area and the mm -hmm. culture of the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm a snob, uh, <laughs> a, a very deficient character. Um, but I remember coming out to the Midwest. I went to school in Chicago and then got, spent a lot of time in the Midwest. And I was once at a, um, a conference, this was back in the 80s, and it was about how to retain talent in a company. And he said, what you got to do is you got to pay your stars much more than pay everybody else and treat your stars a lot better. And then he said, but we're having trouble getting this message across to our companies in the Midwest. <laughs> and like, there's a sense of, I'm no better than anybody else, but nobody's better than me, a basic equality. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is one cultural. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, I was reminded of George H.W. Bush, who I talk about in the book, who grew up in that same generation. Uh, and when he was running for president um, the second time, he, uh, his staff would say, you're running for president, you got to talk about how great you are. And so they would write these paragraphs, I'm George Bush, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, uh, and I should be your president, and he would always X him out. And so finally they just beat up on him, Mr. Bush, you gotta talk about yourself, you're running for president. So one time he read the paragraph, and his mom was still alive, and, and his mom called and said, George, you're talking about yourself. And, uh, forever after, he crossed it out. So that, that is a bit of the self-face, that is not what I see uh, in presidents, you know, I've interviewed now every president since uh, Reagan, um, except for this one. 
<laughs> and I was close to several, and I would, I, I, they had many good traits, all of them. Uh, but uh, humility was not necessarily one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say um, Barack Obama was the most self-confident human being I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. And George W. was, uh, once he got an idea, he, he really loved it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, uh, the one story I'll tell about W., which comes up in this, and this is a bit of a sign of humility, but a bit of a sign of the character test of a modern president. Mm -hmm. It was 2006, and a columnist and I were in the Oval Office with George W., and we were arguing about the Iraq War. And we were um, saying, you don't have enough troops in Iraq, which was a common thing to say. And he was fighting back. And George Bush, in private, is... Um, I will tell my Democratic friends, he's 60 IQ points smarter in private than he is in public. That's, uh, yes, yes, yes. And they all say, okay, that brings him up to 80. But that, <laughs> that's, which is not fair. He's the, he, he read about 113 books a year as president, mm -hmm. which is a lot of books for anybody, let alone a president. Mm -hmm. But he was fighting back, uh, and he got beat red, and he's screaming, and he was saying, Lyndon Johnson sat in this office, and he overruled his generals. I'm never going to be that guy. And we were sort of pushing back. And it was intimidating because he's a big guy. And, but he kept saying, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. Because he never got the chance to have an argument. Because when you're president, your staff does not want to give you a bad mm -hmm. meeting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge. That one of the challenges of being president is getting information. Mm -hmm. But the second is you're love-bombed all day by everybody. Mm -hmm. And that is the one of the big character challenges of being a leader. Just how do you deal with that love-bomb? And how do you not have it affect you? And I've never seen anybody really immune from it. Well, that leads to a question then. How did Grant and Lincoln, for example, you've written biographies on both, how did they handle that kind of uh, adoration? Well, first of all, I think both of them were very good at letting those around them know, I want to hear your real opinion. I want to hear your honest opinion. And be, to be a listener, therefore. Grant would convene a meeting, whether it be of his military staff or of his cabinet, and he would usually be the last person that spoke. And people knew that their opinion was respected. And the same with Lincoln. He respected people's opinions. We know the famous team of rivals where he put people in his cabinet of very different persuasion than himself. So a leader has to be willing to say, I'm, I don't know as much as you do, and I'm willing to appoint people smarter than I am, and then to listen to them. I think that's a huge quality that defines both of them, and that's what made them very successful as leaders. Can I, David? Uh, Ron, uh, I've talked about this story before. It's one of my favorite Lincoln stories, and you as the historian, please correct me if I get it wrong. <laughs> but uh, Lincoln wanted generals who would fight, and he had this general, General McClellan, who was his general. And so he went to McClellan's house, which is unusual, like in this incomprehensible. Incom today's president would go to somebody else's house. <laughs> but so he went to his house uh, to call on him to try to urge him to fight a little more aggressively. And McClellan wasn't home. And so they waited with John Hay, the assistant. And McClellan arrives home, I guess through back door or something, up the back stairs. And the servant says, well, McClellan is resting, but he, he'll come down later to see you. <laughs> so he's making the, general, the president wait. Uh, and then they wait around, I don't know how long, 45 minutes or so, and then the servant comes down and says, uh, General McClellan has retired for the night, he's too tired. <laughs> and, I, and I think, and, and Hay was like, this guy is such an insult. Mm -hmm. And I, you can quote the exact line Lincoln said, but it's, it was something like, I'll wait for anybody who will fight or something like that. Well, he says, I, it, it, the story is true, and he says, I will hold General McClellan's horse if he will lead us to victory. 
So he was not put off. He was not put, put away by the total disrespect of McClellan. Yeah. He and was I, serving a larger cause. Yeah, and I think, you know, some would say you've got to stand up for your assertive rights, but you know, that and the second inaugural, I have this theory about life as I tend to want do, <laughs> uh, which is that we all have two mountains in our lives. And when we're young, we think we're going to climb a certain mountain, and that mountain is building a career, building a family. It's building our ego, building our identity. And then you either achieve all your goals, or you have a failure, or something bad happens in your life, like the death of a child or something, but you get knocked off that mountain. And then you realize, oh, actually, that wasn't my mountain. That some larger cause is actually my mountain. And the first mountain tends to be external, the second one is internal. Mm -hmm. And the first one is about building the ego, and the second is about surrendering the ego. And some people go off into Tibet and meditate for their second mountain, but some people, um, stay in place, but they behave differently. And Lincoln was a very ambitious man. But when the war came, and when he had that episode, or when he wrote the second inaugural, he it was not about the ego anymore. He was, he had, that had all been surrendered into something much, much larger. And he's, to me, an example of somebody whose spiritual growth is almost beyond imagining. If yes. I may, I, I think this touches upon another quality of character and leadership and that is the willingness to admit one's mistakes and to learn from them. Grant is writing his memoirs at the end of his life. He has throat cancer. He knows he's dying. It's a terminal disease. There is no presidential pension until Harry Truman, and so he's writing the memoirs to provide for Julia. He finishes them three days before he dies. The doctors say he only stayed alive so he could finish the memoirs, but even in the last pages, he's willing to admit his mistakes. He's willing to admit what he did wrong. This is just remarkable. And Lincoln is the same. As a young man, Lincoln's humor could hurt. His satire could bite. One day he heard that a man was debating the Whig predecessor to the Republican Party and very critical of it. Lincoln rushes over from his law office in Springfield and he sees this man speaking and the man has some kind of what we might call a physical disability. So Lincoln gets up there and not only refutes the man rhetorically, but he begins to mimic the man's physical disability. And the man breaks into tears. He's humiliated and he rushes out of the room. This is the young Lincoln. But he learned from this. He ultimately sought the man out. He offered his apology. So I think the mark of leadership is, can a person admit their own mistakes? Can they learn from those mistakes and go forward? Grant had this incredible order number 11 where he expelled the Jews in December of 1862. Julia would call it that awful order. But our leading, Jonathan Sarna, our leading American Jewish historian, writes this wonderful book when Grant expelled the Jews and tells that in Grant's two terms as president, he appointed far more Jews than anyone up to that time. He was repentant for what he had done. He learned from it, and he became a great friend of the Jewish community. Can you learn from your mistakes? I think that's a quality of leadership. Times have changed so much, though. As I listen to these stories, and I listen to about the integrity of a Lincoln, and you know, we've talked about Eisenhower, mm -hmm. could a Gerald Ford be elected today, mm -hmm. or a Washington, mm -hmm. or a Lincoln? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the question that was asked this last cycle, because we were looking at the candidates, and. Mm -hmm. Where are our really bright candidates with a lot of integrity? Could they be elected, or are they too overhandled and coached by media consultants? <laughs> uh, I somehow feel they could not get elected. 
I mean, they were all tall, so that's a big advantage. <laughs> I think I've, I've, how many times have in the last hundred years has the shorter candidate won? Almost never. I think Jimmy Carter actually beating Ford might have been the. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know why they don't all just nominate LeBron James. I mean, <laughs> um, but um, so, somehow I think um, there are certain qualities of self-effacement that are not uh, that you know w when I think of the the current batch of presidents. They're all very eye-focused, very assertive. We've, and that's not because they're any worse, but the culture has just shifted. Yeah. And if you look at the use of the first-person pronoun, and mm. they have these things called Google, where mm. you can track the usage of words, mm. and we is down, I is up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a thing called the narcissism test, where they ask people around the world, do you, I'm gonna read you a bunch of statements, does it apply to you? And uh, there are things like, I find it easy to manipulate people because I'm so remarkable. Um, somebody should write a book about me. Uh, I love to look at my body. And the median narcissism score has gone up 30% in the last 20 years. It's just, and we're number one in the world in narcissism. We're, by the way, we're number 25 in the world in our math performance. But if you ask people around the world, are you really good at math? We're number one in the world in thinking we're really good at math. <laughs> and so we, and that, so the, that culture has shifted. I will say, um, and I'll speak generally about the politicians in Congress, say, I'd say up until about five years ago, the quality, the individual quality of the people was as good as any time I've covered. I think in the last five years, the average IQ has gone down about 10 or 20% because a lot of the good people are leaving because it's so unpleasant. But they generally went into the right reasons because it's not a glamorous life. Uh, and it's a hard life. They're very unhappy with the system. And my general take is, by and large, they're good people stuck in a rotten system that they hate and that they don't know how to get out of. And so I do think, in general, we elect people of pretty good character, but they, we send them into a, just this nightmare. One reason I write biographies is I hope and trust that by holding up people of the past, we may see a vision or a model. In preparation for this evening, I was rereading David McCullough's wonderful biography of Harry Truman who in some ways reminds me a little bit of Gerald Ford. He's a common person. He's a, he lives by a creed of uh, treat others well, respect your neighbor, believe in God, work hard. And at the end of that long 992-page biography, David McCullough quotes Eric Severide, the wonderful CBS commentator of years ago. And Eric Severide says, well, he said, uh, I might have disagreed with... Uh, the President Truman on the atomic bomb, or I might have disagreed with him in terms of Korea. I might have disagreed with him on, but Harry Truman was character, character. And I think we might want to be at that place where we could disagree with someone's particular policies, their particular decisions or opinions, but if we could see and value their character, that's what it's all about. I think you win the right to be heard. It's not that you have a title, you're the CEO, you're the president, you're the pastor, whatever it is. Ultimately, you win the right to be heard by, I think, your character. Yeah. I would say one thing, I'm reminded of another story. I was covering a woman named Deborah Price, and she was a moderate Republican member of Congress from around Columbus, Ohio. And I was interviewing her office in Columbus, I think, and she held up this pamphlet and it was a flyer that she had sent out against her opponent. And she held it up like it was a diaper. And she said, this is what I sent out. And she wasn't upset by the stuff that was being hit at her. 
And when you're in a close race, you sort of lose control of your campaign. The national parties come in and take over your campaign. And But she wasn't upset at the stuff hitting her, which was super hard. She was upset about what was going out at her opponent. And her mom, who was like 93, called her up and said, Deborah, I'm ashamed of you for those things you're running against <laughs> your opponent. And she, you know, she was in a tough place because of this. But she said, you know, you don't win, you don't serve. And they're in an era where to win, they think, or maybe they really do, have to run these kinds of campaigns. And so it's not easy to know how to run a campaign because you think, if I don't do this, I'm, the other person will get to serve and I won't get to serve and I want to serve. And so th this is the moral compromise that you, know, you have to make in modern politics. Well, and if the surrounding culture has become so coarsened, mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen a coarsening of language and popular culture, I think. And it's not necessarily that our campaigns are more vicious than they were in the past. You all as historians and researchers know that we had terribly vicious campaigns in the 1820s and sure. soon after the founding of the Republic even, the, the so-called founding fathers mm -hmm. could be the most vicious of all. Mm -hmm. But there does seem, there's a perception that our culture has gotten so much worse and it, it leads to the question now, is it possible that a president can get, it, get the power and maintain the power just on the measure of effectiveness. He gets things done and not at all be ethical. Are we to a point where the national conversation, our culture has shifted so much that the national conversation does, is not driven by ethics, but by, hey, he got something done. Yeah, well, let me say a few things on the, on the culture. First, it, is, it has gotten noticeably more corrosive. But I think it's always a mistake to think we're slouching toward Gomorrah. If you look at most of the social indicators that went south in the 60s, um, they uh, stayed bad for a long time, but now they're much better. Crime is down 70%, domestic violence is down 50%, teenage pregnancy is way down, abortion rates are down a third. Indicator after indicator, a period of social repair. And don't, you know, I'm in the media, but don't think we have all that much power. Uh, you know, a lot of kids are growing up today playing horribly violent video games, pornography everywhere, and yet their own lives are pretty wholesome. Uh, and if you want to feel good about the country, hang around campus. And anybody who's on this campus, I'm sure, can tell you that. And so the, there's corrosive and then there's not corrosive. Uh, as for the, the politics, it seems to me what's lost is um, the, this trust. First of all, we don't trust each other just as a society. It used to be if you asked Americans, do you trust government to do the right thing most of the time? 70, 80% said yes. Now like 19 or 22% say yes. If you ask people, do you trust your neighbors? It used to be 60%, say yeah, my neighbors are trustworthy. Now 32% say that and 19% of millennials. And so there's just been this collapse in social trust. And then I noticed on Capitol Hill, when you were Gerald Ford, or you were Lyndon Johnson, for all his ethical flaws, you were in the business of crafting complicated legislation, mm -hmm. and you knew how to do it. And uh, I was just telling this story, and there's a skill to it, and some of it is just being trustworthy, so you can gather a team. Some of it is just knowing the tricks. I was talking recently about a guy named, with a guy named, well, about a guy named Dick Darman, who was the first President Bush's budget director, and he was telling me about a guy named Mel Laird, who was mm -hmm. Nixon's mm -hmm. Secretary of Defense, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, Wisconsin. And the story he told, and I only I don't really remember this, was that Laird apparently had no hair. He was like bald. And 
but there was a barber in the White House. And uh, every Wednesday, he would schedule an appointment with a White House barber. <laughs> so why did he do this? It's because the, in the Pentagon, the Secretary's schedule is published. And he wanted everybody in the Pentagon to see Laird to White House. <laughs> and so they would think, oh, Mel's with the president again. And that would give him power in the building. But he was just with the barber. Uh, but, so that's like a trick of how to do this. And I, it, since nobody in Congress right now has passed a bipartisan, sophisticated piece of legislation, maybe in 20 years, yeah. they, that skills are, the, just the raw skill set is in decline. Well, I think one of the big shifts is our attitude towards government. Uh, it reflected in our candidates. One now runs with, as a candidate with no experience and trumps that, t talks about that. Lincoln was a person with experience. I think our best persons are politicians with experience. Lawyers have experience. Doctors have experience. We've been struggling with the infrastructure bill. Uh, I recently heard that there's five countries that lead the world in infrastructure. They are Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, and Great Britain. And the question was asked, what is the difference of those five countries? They each trust their government. They believe that government is good and that they would rather trust government than the private industry. And that's how the infrastructure gets going. But we've gotten into such a place of distrusting government. A couple of years ago, I did a teacher's event in Kentucky and I wanted to visit Henry Clay's home, Ashland, outside of Lexington. And when I got there, the, the big sign about Henry Clay was his main nickname was the Great Compromiser. The Great Compromiser. It was a positive term. <laughs> the Great Compromiser. Maybe one of the best people ever not elected president. He ran three times. So our distrust of government, I think, is affecting us all across the board, whether it be Republican or Democratic. Yeah. Very interesting. I want to pose one more question yes. to you all before we open it up to questions from the audience and also our audience in Ann Arbor. Uh, what I'd like to ask, we're on a campus, a college mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. At the Howenstein Center, because of the example of Ralph Howenstein, we do take character seriously. Uh, we're about ethical and effective leadership, but the ethical is put there in the first place for a reason. What should colleges be doing? at this point to rebuild a culture of character, you think? What books should professors assign? What community reading projects should be undertaken? What kinds of things would you suggest? Well, I think universities have become so specialized and we've lost the kind of loco inferentis that we've, we've shied away, we've walked away from the whole idea of character formation. Uh, let's all assign David's book. This is the best you can get. But I think the reason to read biography again is because you watch the shaping of character, the formation of character. That's very different than just doing a survey class in American history or European history. We need to watch the way the formation of character in individuals and, and, and lift that up as, as models for young men and women. And my, uh, that book was based on the distinction uh, between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. Yes. The resume virtues are the things that make you good at your job, and the eulogy virtues are the things that you say about you after you're dead, whether you're honorable, courageous, capable of great love. And that my belief is that most universities are really good at teaching the resume virtues, but don't know what to say about the eulogy virtues. And so the students uh, are hungry for it. 
but they don't have the vocabulary, moral vocabulary. There are certain words that are not part of their vocabulary, sin, grace, mercy, charity. And so without those words, it's hard to understand spiritual development. And I'm talking about, and so I would give talks about this to the students, and it was like a sprinkler system in the desert. <laughs> Any talk of character, they just, they wanted, because they, they, they're like all of us. We have a moral yearning to lead a good life. But they, nobody was supplying that. And I would go especially to secular universities, and the hunger was so palpable because the, the professors were specialized. They didn't think it was their business to do it. I go to Calvin or Hope, and they're like, yeah, we do this all the time. We're like, <laughs> but, um, but, but then, and so what they do is they get out of college, and a lot of them don't know their purpose in life. That's fine, you're 22. And they're in flux, and they are without moral authority, they're without moral language, and they really don't know how to find meaning and purpose in their life. And so what does we in adult culture tell them? Well, first we say, uh, it's okay to fail. That's what every commencement speaker says. <laughs> and from that you learn if you're Denzel Washington or J.K. Rowling, failing looks good. <laughs> like, but second, we tell them, be free. Explore your freedom. And they say, no, I've got plenty of freedom. I need authority and structure. I want some knowledge. And then we say, well, look inside yourself. You do you. They're like, yeah, I'm looking inside myself. I don't, you know, there's nothing here. There are no answers here. <laughs> And they say, you know, but your future is limitless. And so basically we give them a series of empty boxes. And partly because we've grown up in a culture, maybe stretching back for hundreds of years, where the emphasis is all about liberation and emancipation. Break free, break free. And that's like getting out of Egypt if you're Moses. But there was a second chapter, a second piece of that book, which was taking the law at Sinai and rebinding. And we're really good at the emancipation part. Mm -hmm. We're not good at the rebinding part. Mm -hmm. And so people get lost in their freedom and they just don't know how to define. And I think that's a, just a national failure, not just a, a university failure. We're very good at freedom from, but we haven't yet transitioned into freedom for. Yeah. And there's a huge distinction between the two. Very good. Do we have any questions? <laughs> While we're waiting for questions to come forward, uh, let me just comment. I think some of the attractive figures of history, like a Socrates, mm -hmm. uh, is very compelling to students because Socrates teaches you the long, arduous road to self-mastery. And it, it, there's something heroic about that that's really, uh, students will respond. It, it puts the romance in philosophy, for one thing. I mean, that, that there is a, a, a reason to struggle. Yeah, so, I, I teach a seminar and I, I, at the last assignment, we read 14 books in the seminar, and the last assignment is pick any book and use it to describe a personal problem you're going through. And there, I assigned 14 books, and 19 of my students chose one book. And it was a book called The Long Loneliness by Dorothy Day. And this, she was a very um, remarkable woman who was a mess as a young woman, uh, as so many people are. She had a, gave birth. And if I can remember this correctly, she wrote an essay about the act of giving birth, and it ended with this little paragraph. Um, if I had created the greatest paint, uh, sculpture, uh, written the greatest symphony, or composed the greatest novel, I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. And with that flood of love and joy came a need to worship and to adore. And she needed somebody to thank, and she decided 
God was the person to thank. She became a Catholic, and she spent the next 60 years of her life not only serving the poor, but working and living within the poor, you know, embracing a life of poverty as a Catholic social worker. And she transfixes them because she's so emotional, but then she's so dedicated and so committed. And they, a lot of that, I'll take that. I'll take one of those. Yes. Yes. Very good. Well, here's a question from this audience. In this disruptive political moment, how should citizens build the resilience it takes to remain engaged and informed even amid the toxic exchanges that take place so regularly in the news cycle and in public life? I think resilience is the key word. I, I think, again, having spent a lot of my time working with young people as a college chaplain, as a professor, there's a tremendous idealism that is so attractive in young adults. But the question is, what will happen when you meet the obstacle, when you meet the, the problem? Do you have the resilience? And that, I think, causes us to go mo much more deep within ourselves to find what are the ideas that are really motivating you. This is a difficult time in which we live. But I, I'm worried that many of us, many of my generation, are sort of withdrawing. There's, it's a frightening time. We need resilience to continue the task of, of building a, a more just society. Yeah. And I would say, the first thing I would say is keep having faith in politics. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to zone out. And the first thing we say about that is the ability to not care about politics is a luxury you have if you live in a healthy society. If you live in a sick society where you could be shot or you have to bribe, you do not have the luxury of not caring about politics. Second, if you don't care about politics, politics will care about you. Uh, and eventually your life will be impinged by it. The second thing I would say is, to me, a lot of what's going on wrong with our politics is a failure of intellectual character. We think of character as fortitude, as courage, like soldiers or nurses, but character is also a, a mental thing. And it's the ability to hold opinions firmly, but, but a little flexibly, like you don't wanna be a total pushover, but you don't wanna be rigid. You wanna be courageous and take risks in your conclusions, but you don't wanna be reckless. Uh, you wanna be able to see opposing sides. Uh, and that is a super hard thing to do. Hmm. I was, we were just talking about a, a book I'm reading by a neuroscientist where they give people evidence, say it's on global warming, they give people evidence, well, essays con contradicting their opinion. What this evidence does, it doesn't sway them toward where the evidence leads, it sways them further away as, because the essays force them to make up new arguments for why they were always right. <laughs> and the more intelligent you are, the better you are at thinking of more arguments so the more you're likely to be polarized against the actual data. Uh, and it's a fact of politics that the more educated you are, the more likely you are to be extreme. Uh, because with college-educated people are much more polarized, much more likely to vote straight party line than high school-educated people. David, you're making our common ground initiative. <laughs> but, but he all, is not the poster child for this. <laughs> but all this is to say is that if anybody goes to church, synagogue, or mosque, that there is such a thing as original sin. <laughs> and our minds have something like original sin. It's kind of screwed up the way we're built. Yeah, yeah. And so you got to work hard to overcome that. <laughs> and so it's just up to us to work hard to overcome it. Now here's and, a and use your initiative. There, there we the go. Retaking common ground. We're going to keep trying. <laughs> now here's a question from the Ford School in Ann Arbor. What are the consequences of electing a president with such a controversial character? 
Now, that's not a controversial question, is it? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, um, there's, a, there's always a good, um, you know, a lot of moral decisions are, are, are competitions between virtues. Um, the virtue of politeness and the virtue of honesty, for example. Um, and so, personally, I'm not a fan of the president. And I think one of the things that's happening, and we could take him out of it, I think one of the things that indisputably is happening is that every wound in the body politic is further apart, being ripped further apart than it was a year ago. And it's going to take a long time and a lot of work on a community and family and personal levels to rebuild the, the social fabric. And to me, if you ask me one thing to define why Trump was elected, what people were upset about, and the whole master thing that's driving all this, the phrase I go to is a, a crisis of social solidarity. There used to be, there's a rise of loneliness, a rise of atomization, a rise of distrust. Uh, of that World War II generation, they had, the, they had this concept because they had the depression, the wars, we're in this together. <clears throat> The sins in the last 40 years, our phrase might as well have been, uh, I'm free to be myself. And there was some virtue to that. We're a lot more creative than we were. The food in the 50s was so boring. Uh, but we've taken that a little far. And the connections between people, the social capital is in steep decline. Well, people, there were many people opposed to George W. Bush, many people opposed to Barack Obama. But if there's a positive side of this, I think there's a kind of a, an engagement of people in the political process precisely because of the difficulty of the moment. So people that were kind of content to coast along, well, I don't like them, but it's okay, I'm not really very involved. People are, are stepping forward to becoming more involved. Young people are stepping forward to becoming more involved. So there is a positive side to this, of, of, of asking questions that perhaps haven't been asked in a long time. They're difficult questions, but people are asking these questions, and are, there's a level of engagement that I think is increasing. Okay, very good. Here's another question. Um, it's difficult to trust the media nowadays. How would you change the character of the media? I would um, fire the columnists. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll say a couple things about the media, um, of which I am a lifelong member. Um, uh, you know, there, I do think, I'll, I'll say of my colleagues, not only at the Times, but elsewhere, um, most of the people I work with, and I'm a conservative, columnist at the Times. My joke at being a conservative columnist at the New York Times is like being the chief rabbi at Mecca. <laughs> um, but I, I will say that of my colleagues, um, they, are, um, they believe in the craft of journalism. Uh, and they practice that. They may come from the coast, so they may be more socially liberal than the average American, but they believe in the craft. Uh, and if you think Hillary Clinton campaign loved us, I guarantee you that is not the case. Um, and so there is a, um, and I happen to think that in the Trump era that we've, there have just been a series, the, the Trump White House leaks like no other White House ever. And as a result, there have been a lot of scoops and stories, most of which have been pretty accurately checked out. And so I happen to think uh, the Post, the Washington Post, the New York Times, a bunch of the papers, have had a, a good moment 
whether I would always believe in Infowars or Alex Jones, if that's the media, then no, I have a darker opinion. But the established media, I think, has had a reasonably good period, frankly, over the last year, uh, especially at my employer who pays my salary. <laughs> I think the media is much better than, than often is given credit for. My concern is quite different. A professor at Stanford went and interviewed students in middle school and junior high school in Northern California, and he asked the question, where do you get your news? They didn't read newspapers. They didn't watch television. All of their news was coming through Facebook. And so when they are asked, well, what about the credibility of this story? They weren't able to ask that question. So now there's a few teachers, one in Alexandria, Virginia, teaching American history on fake news on how a person would actually ascertain, is this a reliable source? People are not asking that question. So I'm much more worried about a younger generation that isn't even reading the media or, listen, or watching television. I think that's a great concern. Now, this is a really interesting question. Um, the questioner asks, if you did have, and I think it's for both of you, if you did have the opportunity to interview President Trump, what would you ask, and how would the interview go? What would you push on? <laughs> I told you people in West Michigan are civically yeah, engaged. Yeah. <laughs> well, I... I, I Oh boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> I guess the question's been asked before, and that is, uh, have you made any bad decisions? Are you willing to admit any mistakes that you've made? I mean, this is what I found most, most perplexing. The unwillingness to sort of admit that something has gone wrong. If you looked at the vocabulary of great, 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 it just keeps going on. And there doesn't seem to be very much nuance here in terms of the complexity of the life that we're facing. Yeah. I, I um, the, the prospect, I've, I've, I, the, it's traditional for presidents to have columnists in for lunch once a month. So it was normal to go in there and get to talk to the previous presidents. Somehow that invitation has been lost in my email. <laughs> um, but uh, I would say um, my general rule at those meetings for all presidents is don't ask about a past decision because they're usually so defensive about mm. past decisions they'll waste 20 or 30 minutes of your time justifying something they already did. So always ask, what are you thinking about the decision right in front of you? Mm -hmm. And so I, I would ask, I would try to get a sense that there must be more, presidents are also very different public to private. Um, their private lives, they're much more normal. Um, they're much more willing to admit the mistakes. They're much more willing to say, boy, we screwed that one up. Uh, they're much more, a lot of what they do is, um, is character appraisal. Uh, appraising other world leaders, other people in the government, is a lot of it is just personnel. And so I'd wanna just and ask him sort of, some character appraisals, um, and then uh, just what is the thinking behind this or that decision? There must be multiple levels of subtlety that he would, doesn't put on in the showbiz version of himself. And I'd just be curious to know, how is there something below beneath the showbiz? <laughs> well, here's a question about, uh, I think from a, a realistic point of view, all organizations go through periods of dysfunction. How do you envision our way out of the current chaos in Washington, in the presidency, and in our country? <laughs> I, 
I think maybe some of the next candidates need to be not senators or congresspersons, but governors who have experience in government, who maybe don't come from the coasts, <laughs> but who, who have already demonstrated their ability, perhaps a Democrat in a Republican state or a Republican in a Democratic state, to work across the line, to know how to do this, who really bring this skill. And it is a skill, and I think that that's the hope. I'm not sure who that person is, but I think that's, that's the hope going forward, to find that person who can work across the lines. Let me ask you, push a little bit right there. Do you think, since you're coming from the West Coast, you're coming from the East Coast, <laughs> is there something different about the Midwest, truly? Or is it just a construct out there? I don't know enough to be able to answer that question. I was born in Minnesota. <laughs> I love coming here. I spent a lot of time in Illinois because of Abraham Lincoln, Ohio because of Ulysses S. Grant. I think there's some more bedrock, fundamental, common sense values. I think the problem today is we're listening to the extremes on the right and on the left, and there's a great middle, there's a great moderate who's claiming the center, and we're not listening to those voices. I think those voices, I'm sure, are in this room this evening. Yeah, I think the Midwest is by far the best region in the country. No, I only say that because I'm here. No, um, no I, I would say two things. I'm, it, it talk about cultural general, generalizations in front of the in, the, in the lion's den. But I would say two things. One is I do think there is more um, uh, equipoise in the Midwest. I do think there's a niceness factor. Um, I, uh, I got to know um, Walter Mondale. Just two, two quick Minnesota stories. Uh, and I was speaking out in Minneapolis, and he asked me if I wanted to have breakfast. And I said, sure, I'd love to. He, you know, he was a hero of mine. I grew up with a Walter Mondale poster on my wall. Uh, and uh, I think it said, oh, it said, some talk, others lead. And so even as a young boy, I knew I was the kind who only talked. Uh, and... So we had breakfast and it was charming and we had mutual friends and we talked some old stories and I asked him, you know, things I'm always curious about, like, when you're going to a convention, what's it like to be the person the convention's for? Because, like, they're big operations. And he said, you're not really even part of it. You come in the last moment, you give your speech, you have one celebration, you're gone. And so I've never seen, I've, the convention I saw least was the one where I was the nominee. But it's sort of interesting. And so, but he kept saying during the breakfast, Oh, well, you probably have got to go do some work. And I was saying, no, like, I'm happy <laughs> talking to you. Uh, and he, he said it like three or four times. And um, finally I said, oh, he has to go. He's just giving me a polite way. So I went up to my hotel room, and I came back down 20 minutes later, and he was still sitting there alone in the breakfast room. But his modesty was such yeah. that he wanted to give me an out because he figured I had something important to do. And that I do think that I find that with a lot of... Mm -hmm. Um, the senators, there's another senator from current senator, Amy Klobuchar, mm -hmm. uh, a very normal, charming, nice human being. I, the story I tell about her, I was flying back from Minneapolis to D.C., and we happened to be sitting in, in first class in the airplane. She went back to work the room, uh, uh, back of the plane, because she's a politician, you know. Uh, and then she came up, and the flight attendant saw her come up from the back of the plane to the first class cabin, and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, you can't come up here. <laughs> and so she looks at me, and I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, like, I've never seen this woman before in my life. <laughs> and, but you can do that because normal. So I do think there is a much greater equanimity, which you see, when, say, when you're covering the Iowa primaries. Mm -hmm. However, 
I would not say the Midwest is more politically moderate than any other part of the country. Look at who wins the Iowa primaries. And so that's either good or bad, it's just a, a point I make, that you can have emotional equanimity without having necessary political equanimity. Well, in what, 1972, George Wallace, I think, wins the, the Democratic primary. Uh, Jesse Jackson wins in 1988 in mm -hmm. Michigan. Mm -hmm. So Michigan has had a track record, for example, of, yeah. of going sometimes a little bit more out there right. than sort mm -hmm. of the mainstream, mm -hmm. yeah. which buttresses your point. Uh, we only have time for a couple more questions, but this is a good way to, to sort of start to wrap up the evening. What do you think biographers and historians will write about our current situation 20 years from now? <laughs> we got the crystal ball right there. I only write history. <laughs> it's a tumultuous time to which we have no idea how it's going to play itself out. You know, the people who said, well, Donald Trump isn't going to last for three, four months or a year. We have no idea what's going to happen. And there's forces at work today that are, are, are different than we've had before. It's a different political culture. It's a different nation. It's frightening in some ways because it is so different. But I think it would be foolish to try to make a prediction. Yeah, I would only say, I mean, I, as, you saw, as I've written a million times, I'm not a fan. I think it's, it's the most dysfunctional White House I've ever seen. Um, and nonetheless, I, my view is that Donald Trump was the wrong answer to the right question. That a lot of people who voted for Trump voted for real legitimate reasons, having to do with social breakdown, having to do with economic dislocation, having to do with the moral injury they'd suffered, a loss of dignity, a sense of invisibility. And I think before, whether Trump goes, serves four years or eight years, that, the breaking apart of America along education lines will still be there. And when you get a fundamental rupture along those lines, then you get some pretty nasty stuff. And we'll be judged on how well we deal with breaking the ruptures between the educated, the less educated, the urban and the rural, the black and the white, the right and the left. Mm -hmm. And if we can rebind the country, as ha has happened. I mean, I think the British Empire, I've been thinking about this, the 1830s. 1810 was a pretty bad period for the British Empire. It was collapsing, British society was really kind of a mess. But frankly, they had a religious revival that helped. But the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the empire had a second burst of steam. Mm -hmm. And it's up to us to whether we can have that. Okay. Uh, here's a question from Ann Arbor to stretch us a little bit. Can a moral foundation for leadership be found outside of religion and a strong family structure? And if so, where would that moral foundation come from? Hmm. Well, I would say yes. I mean, I, I know a lot of religious people, and I am religious. Uh, and a lot of them are wonderful, and a lot of them are schmucks. <laughs> and I, have, I know a lot of atheists, and some of them are wonderful, and some are schmucks. And I'm, frankly, in my just life experience, I would think the religious people would have a huge advantage in behavior over the atheists, because they talk about virtue all the time. But I, maybe a slight advantage or maybe no advantage. And I would say, and this is one thing one university, universities can do, is we can tell students, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but you are the lucky inheritors of a whole series of moral traditions, moral ecologies. There's a Greek and Roman honor code that celebrates glory and honor and courage. There's a biblical, uh, say, Hebrew code that's, that celebrates obedience to law and justice, Christian code of surrender and grace, a rationalist code that celebrates the use of reason and logic, 
the scientific code. There's a whole series of moral traditions that have come down. I'm just talking about the West, let alone in the East and elsewhere. And, you know, if you think you can come up with your own values, well, if your name is Aristotle, maybe you can do that. But most of us can't. So in, see, check out all these different moral traditions and see which one fits you. And there are plenty of people who behave like we were talking about Pericles, according to the Greek honor code, are great human beings. There are rationalists who are great people. Who, their commitment to science and morality through the use of reason is, is very admirable and very sincere. And so there are a lot of different moral codes, that some of which are driven by an ultimate allegiance, but some of them are not. And I would just say as a matter of function, uh, they seem to work. One of my primary passions and discoveries and concerns is that as we have written American biographies, in a way I don't fully understand, we have not told the story of those religious traditions. So you read the standard biographies of Abraham Lincoln and you have no idea how he could come to the place of doing a second inaugural address where in 701 words he will mention God 14 times, quote the scriptures four times, and invoke prayer three times. There's a profound religious story there. When I came to write my biography of Ulysses S. Grant, I asked the question, is there a faith story here? I hadn't read it in any of the traditional Grant biographies. I discovered there is. If Lincoln's was a Presbyterian story, Grant's was a Methodist story. Julia's grandfather was a Methodist minister. The Methodist church became the largest Protestant church in America by the Civil War long before the Washington Cathedral. The Methodists decided to build a national church in Washington, the Metropolitan Church. They'd struggled with building it until the son of Methodism was elected president. That church was inaugurated and installed four days before Grant was installed as president. Grant was a trustee. Julia was the person who would retire the debt on the church. Now I'm doing a new project on Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the hero of Gettysburg. There's a profound congregational story there. After attending Bowdoin College, he spent three years at Bangor Theological Seminary. This is part of what marks America. It's deep religious traditions, but you don't often find this in the biographies. So you read about these people and don't really know this. I had lunch with David Eisenhower, and he told me that uh, of all the presidents, Billy Graham told him that he had known the person who he had the most profound faith conversations with was his grandfather, Dwight Eisenhower. Did you know that Dwight Eisenhower was baptized while he was president of the United States? Joined the Presbyterian Church while he was president of the United States? You don't find that. So I, I, I'm wishing to say, yes, there's a possibility of alternative ones, but let's first of all understand the faith traditions that are present in some of our greatest leaders, and let's fill that story out. It needs to be part of what we ask, what is the meaning of character? What nurtures character? I think the faith traditions are primary in nurturing character. Well, thank you very much for a very enlightening evening. Let's give a hand. I just want to close by saying thank you for all of you who support the efforts of whether it's the Ford Foundation, the Ford Library and Museum, the Hallenstein Center, Grand Valley State University for bringing programs like this to our civic spaces in West Michigan. 
It inspires students more than you know, and that's what we're in the business of doing. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you for being here to lead a great conversation. Good evening. That was, in order, Peter Secchia, and then David Brooks, Ronald C. White, and Gleaves Whitney in conversation. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hauenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit HowensteinCenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.